it's it's mind-blowing the connections and the whys and the history of this thing This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Today's episode is a bonus episode celebrating our 50th episode, which came out on the 23rd of February 2019. I honestly never thought we'd get this far, but it's thanks to you, the listener. Your feedback and kind comments keep me going, and I'm delighted that we appear to be keeping your interest after almost a year of broadcasting. Now, regular listeners will know the drill. This is the point at which I ask you to help support us. As the podcast gets more popular... Our costs of hosting and running the podcast increase, so if you are enjoying what you hear, a few dollars, pounds or rubles a month help keep us on the air. Head over to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option to learn more. Thank you so much to all our fans that are supporting us. It is really appreciated. Now, back to today's episode where I introduce our two guests. So, on today's Cold War Conversations, we have Dia Klein, who is a blogger, public speaker, actress, and rule breaker. And if you're not intrigued enough, we also have Susan Klein, who uh, sells real estate in Santa Fe. Now, you may be wondering why we have these two on the program. So I'm just going to uh, hand over to Dia to explain a little bit more. Thank you, Ian. Well, in 1951, when my mom was nine years old, she unknowingly became a part of an experimental pilot program in her school that advocated tattooing young children with their blood type. Launched as a civilian defense measure to aid in the possible aftermath of a nuclear attack. In 1951 in America, uh, sailors, generally military personnel, were the only people who had tattoos and they weren't that acceptable. But no one, no one was tattooing children. And what was the idea behind it? I mean, what, why, were they, why were they being tattooed? What was the reason for that? It was an experimental program to help calm everyone's nerves, to give them something to do, a way to feel like they were part of a solution to the Cold War mania that was attacking the country. We have the Korean War happening, and we have the Soviet Union dominance, and all this weird stuff is going on. And our medical association and our red cross got together and they said we need a way to organize our blood donors in case of a catastrophe we want our population ready to be of service and ready to get emergency aid quickly i guess the reasoning behind this is is what you might be incapacitated or um they can't identify you or, or are there any other reasons around that? It, part of the reasons why they decided 
a blood type tattoo was the way to go was because they thought about what would happen in a nuclear attack. You could have limbs blown off if you were carrying any sort of ID card in your pocket, may not be on you. A very common type of identification were dog tags. Well, that can be very easily taken off your head or blown off your head. But, but the reasoning behind the tattoo, and it was placed on the left side under your arm on the rib cage, was that if your limbs did indeed blow off and your torso was still intact, you had a fairly good chance of possible survival if we knew your blood type and we could get you a blood transfusion fast enough. That's a, uh, a lovely picture you've painted there of, uh, <laughs> of a, of a post-nuclear attack. The, 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 <laughs> the larger picture is that the American Red Cross deemed these subjects walking blood banks. And Susan, um, what, did your parents tell you this was going to happen? Well, there was... Um, a form letter sent out by the school to the parents, and we, the kids, were the couriers for this letter. So, of course, we, we read it. Um, our understanding of what it was in fourth grade was rather limited. The interesting, the interesting part, you know, all these decades later, was that my parents signed the permission slip for a tattoo for me and for one of my brothers who was also of the age to get it. And other relatives, uh, my cousins, their parents also signed this permission slip for a tattoo. And then given the fact that we are Jews and our families, some of them from Poland, from Romania, from Hungary, were forced into concentration camps, and they were tattooed. I mean, the coming together of these two tattoos <laughs> decades later is kind of mind-boggling. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite chilling, that, that link between the Holocaust and a nuclear holocaust. I guess you can't remember exactly what the letter said because I, I, I'm trying to understand what the parents thought they were doing there. Did you think it was possibly, and I know this is going to be guesswork probably on your part, but do you think that they right. were doing it as, because the government or the school said they were going to do it, they, they needed to do it? And in those times, there was probably less of a questioning of authority yeah, I think less of a questioning and the idea that your child with their blood tattooed, the type of their blood on their left side, if there was a nuclear event or even a plain and simple accident, people would know that that blood type was there. But, you know, in retrospect, I think well, how would people know it was there? This program, this pilot program, was only done in two cities throughout the country. Yeah, yeah. So it's done on quite on quite a small scale compared to the the population of the U.S. or a very small scale. 
Right. And and dear, how how did you find out about this story from your mother? <laughs> well, I definitely grew up knowing that my mom had this strange little tattoo on her side, and I would ask her about it, and she would just say, "Oh yeah, I got that when I was a kid in school." And I, of course, would wonder when I would be getting mine. And she said, no, they don't do that anymore. She also has a smallpox vaccination scar on her arms. And she was just like, you don't have one of these. You're not going to get one of these blood type tattoos. And I kind of just took it at that. And as I grew older, I kept thinking about it every now and then. And then I had my child and I kept thinking to myself, who would tattoo their kid? This is this is crazy, Mom. What do you, what more do you remember? And she said, "All I remember is that I got tattooed." And then, with the fabulous invention of the World Wide Web, some twenty five years ago, it really started getting good. I would hop on periodically to research what is there to know about my mom's tattoo. And then I started educating her on what happened. And the more I found out, and I would tell her, she would just, she'd be incredulous. <laughs> it's unbelievable. What? They did what? We were the only ones. And it was pretty fabulous to be the one telling my mom about her history. And I kept bringing her information. And we both just kept being stupefied and stunned by everything that I kept digging up. And even now, after this article has been published on my blog and after I've put the little film out, I've found out so much more information. It's, it's mind-blowing, the connections and the whys and the history of this thing. Yeah, and I'll I'll be providing links to uh, Dia's blog. It's well worth a read, and there's a wonderful video of Susan on there. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. Your personality's or your personality really comes across well on it, Susan. So and and it's coming <laughs> and it's coming across well now on on audio as well. So Susan, can you remember the day when you were tattooed? Um, you know, I get bits and pieces of it. Um, I remember that there was an atmosphere of tension in the school because this was the day you were going to get tattooed. And what they would do is excuse one class at a time which then that class went to the nurse's office and you lined up outside the nurse's office. The door was shut. The first person in line goes in, the door is shut, and there's silence until you hear crying. And it just freaked us out, those of us who remained in line in front of the nurse's office. It's like, oh, how bad does it hurt? Uh, do you bleed a lot? Well, the tension got so great in that line between the first person that went in and the fifth person that we had kids break out in a sweat and fainting before they even got in. It was mildly hysteric. 
Yeah. Did some kids try and run for it and just say, I'm not going in there? I don't recall that they did. Everybody who was in line had a permission slip to be tattooed, signed by the parent. How old were you? Um, nine, ten. Not very old. No, no. And and did they explain why they were doing it? Um, yeah. What they said was this was a big benefit to everybody who got their blood type tattooed in case there was any kind of an accident you could get blood immediately because there was your blood type and you know decades on i'm thinking well if i was in a car accident and i wasn't in gary indiana but in chicago illinois 30 miles north how would that person in chicago know to look on my left side for my blood type yeah yeah no absolutely and and dear through through your research i mean did you find much information about the process i mean were they you know, I'm aware that with tattooing, you can pick up some quite nasty diseases. So what was the sort of hygiene level in terms of cleaning these machines or whatever they were using in between kids? Right. That's the really scary part. For those of us who have tattoos and have sat in a tattoo parlor to be to get tattooed, we have seen, we all know what the stakes are for hygiene these days. It is a highly, highly regulated business. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And back in the 1950s with this tattoo tool called the Burgess Vibra Tool. So if you can imagine like 30, maybe 50 needles sticking out in a cluster and they would put some sort of blood type template around those needles. So only the needles pushing through to make the O positive mark would come through they mm-hmm. would dip, dip it in this fantastic antiseptic ink god knows what that would do <laughs> and then they would just push it in there are zero records zero accounts for the hygiene factor we're talking 50 needles each one of those needles needs to be disinfected after every child i don't think they had autoclaves back then did they just figure okay Everyone with the O blood type gets this gun. Everyone with the AB blood type gets this tool. I don't, there's no record and we can only guess. I'm assuming they thought the antiseptic ink was the solution to any sort of 
communicable disease worry. They could have taken a cotton ball with some alcohol and just wiped it. I mean, I, I can't say that happened because I don't remember. <laughs> Can you, the, the, the absurdity of that, Mom. Oh, my God. I know. I know. And we called it, um, it was called the tattoo gun. It was called a gun. Right. And and can you remember how much it hurt, Susan? Given, yes, given the amount of tension and anticipation of a huge amount of pain, it filled my expectations. Wow. It, and you can remember that even that 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 far back. So uh, that that sounds like um, that yeah. was a particularly nasty experience. I mean, did they get it right the first time, or did they have several goes on these kids? See that I don't recall. I, you know, I recall the line: "The going in one at a time, with the door closing behind you in the nurse's office," and the nurse is the one who did it. So you really, I never saw anybody else get tattooed. Wow. And surely, I mean, you must have spoken about it as, as kids after you, you came out and compared your experiences. Oh, yes, we did. Um, my, my brother, my cousin, my friends, we, we all got together and compared blood type tattoos and remembering how scary, how frightened, how awful, how painful. It was, we did not see the positive to it. It was just terrible. No, not even the O positive to it. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> not even the O positive. <laughs> Sorry. I will take that out. That is a really bad joke. Um, <laughs> um, dear, when, when did they stop doing that? I mean, how long were they doing these tattoos for? They did it for about a year. And all of the myriad of reasons you could come up with as to why they stopped are very likely the reasons why they did indeed stop. Some of the more medical, obvious clinical reasons why this project was not going to succeed fell down to the reasons of the doctors never relied on that pre-typing. There was an error rate of about 10%, which is pretty huge and yeah. pretty significant in the world of blood transfusions. If you get it wrong, you're dead. Yeah, absolutely. Another reason, and another reason would be the simple fact of the ability to just give plasma instead of a, a type blood or to give the universal O-negative donor blood. Yeah. And how many kids overall do you think actually had this done? There are no records. There are absolutely no records that say how many children participated in Utah or in Indiana. None. Right. It's, it's a guess. Here's something interesting. I've been fortunate in that I have not been in any accidents, you know, requiring me to go from the ambulance to the hospital. But I have been in the hospital twice to give birth. Neither time did anybody look at my left side for my blood type. No. So it's not something common that, you know, is part of the protocol for, for medical care. Yeah. And, and it looks like it, was, it wasn't every kid in the state of 
Utah and Indiana. It was just certain counties within those states, was it? Correct. Correct. Susan, I, th- I think in, in later life, you, you had quite a neat explanation for why you had this tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, given who I am, it couldn't, I couldn't just say, oh, yeah, I'm O positive. That's my blood type. So what I would say when somebody would see that tattoo, I would say, well, you know, I had this boyfriend and we were really serious. And I had his initials tattooed there. O-T, Otto Turner. Turnbull, mom. Oh, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And and people's eyes would just get bigger (laughs) when I would say that. And that gave you this sort of air of mystery. Yeah, kind of the rebel, too. You know, look what she did. Oh, so rule breaker like your daughter, huh? Yeah, you think it it kind of passed through true. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> that 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 that's great. Otto Turnbull. <laughs> what a name. No, it is. It well it's got an air of mystery about it as well, because it's sort of like a bit continental but with an ordinary surname. You know, it's it works on so many levels, Susan. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so, dear, I mean, where where is your research going for this now? Are you, are you you're presumably getting people contacting you through your blog posts, sharing other stories about this um, blood tattoo? Yes, I, I definitely uh, want to get people to share their stories. I would love to document more personal POVs on on their journeys. The research for me. Since I've published the the blog and the video has been kind of mind blowing because I started asking deeper questions about why and who, and I started going down this line of the doctor who was really behind this program, and it is absolutely mind blowing the whys of this guy and that lead to this program, the Operation Tat Type happened. And so this, this doctor, what, what was the background of this, this doctor? Was he a government doctor who was looking at civil defense? This doctor's name is Dr. Andrew Ivey, and he was the vice president of the University of Illinois. But more importantly, he was chosen by the American Medical Association to be the principal consultant to testify at the Nuremberg trials on war crimes. So here is like the preeminent physiologist of the United States. He's the conscience of U.S. science. He's a big, he's a guy. And we have to assume here we are in the 1950s. He's, he's male. He's white. He's educated. He's a doctor. He probably has a very likely highly developed God complex. So here's this guy who thinks nothing he comes up with is is bad. He is the leading thought processor of America at the moment. And he's sitting at these Nuremberg trials and a couple things come out that happen at the trials that lead us directly into the Operation Tat Type. The first is he takes he listens to testimony of identifying the SS officers, the Nazi 
uh, troops would get and officers, they got put on on the on trial and they would deny they would deny that they were SS officers. And there was one fail safe way to tell if you were an SS officer, and that was to take off your shirt and to look at your left bicep, because the Nazis wanted to make sure that their elite fighting force, the SS, were taken care of in case they needed a blood transfusion. So their blood type was tattooed onto their left bicep. So this is, he's learning about this in 1947, much before Operation Tat Type. So the correlation of him bringing these tattoos, these blood type tattoos that are so closely associated with the Nazis, with the SS, into Gary, Indiana, a high population of Jews, is stunning. Wow, that is the, just... The irony is nauseating. That's just un, unbelievable. I mean, obviously, we, we made that connection earlier, but for this guy to actually be at the Nuremberg trials and unknowingly know that this was a Nazi yeah. concept of identification and to apply it in an area that had a large Jewish population. Do you, did you, have you found out why Gary, Indiana was, was chosen, you know, why these areas were particularly chosen for the trial? There had been lots of talk in different cities around the country in the late forties about that, that, that need to organize blood and several civil defense committees in different cities got together and they talked about, should we ratify a plan? What should we do? Chicago, led by our favorite, Dr. Andrew Ivey, he was able to get Chicago to ratify a blood typing plan, but they never enacted it. But Gary, Indiana, 25 miles from downtown Chicago, just on that southern tip of Lake Michigan, they said, that sounds like a good idea. We'll do it. Now, I don't know how Utah how they came to that decision, because I don't think Dr. Ivy had his hand over there as much or at all, but several cities and multiple communities did similar things, but they were mostly like, let's just blood type our population and let's give them dog tags or let's give them an ID card. But it was Gary, Indiana, Lake County that said, no, no, we like this tattooing thing. That sounds so much better. And in in the archives, have you found any paper trail, you know, that's giving you any, any, well, it sounds like you haven't got the full information about how the decisions were, were made, but, you know, anything further that you found in the archives? The only information I keep finding that's new is the information and the history behind Dr. Andrew Ivey and his decision-making process and how he was able to push this program through. Because another thing that came out of the Nuremberg trial, there was this accepted acknowledgement that there were no concrete guidelines that existed for the ethic of human medical experimentation. That was a big point that the Nazis, that the Germans were trying to make, that how did we know it was so bad to do yeah. this? And so Dr. Ivey's work and opinions at the Nuremberg trials helped create these sort of ethical guidelines. So he was behind 
these ideas, which eventually led to this thing called the Declaration of Helsinki, which is the big cornerstone um, international document about human experimentation rights. But the, the main points that he put forth, and these kill me, the need for consent is one. So how can this nine-year-old child consent? Mm. Careful planning and experiment and experimentation, that did not happen. And the performing of the experiments by trained personnel. Well, I don't think the nurses were, were trained personnel to give these tattoos. But he no. pushed this information forward and he falsified his records. He had numerous accusations of falsifying uh, data for his clinical trials. And he liked to rush into things. There's so much information of this guy, Dr. Ivy hearing about something and then deciding to do it without waiting, without finding proper data, without doing experimentation. What you're describing there and, you know, you saying that the whole God complex thing, I mean, it, it does sound like a guy who just feels that whatever decision he makes, it will be the right decision because he's almost superior to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everyone told him he was and he chose to believe it. Yeah. Uh, it's almost uh, Hitler-esque. Yes, yeah. wouldn't you say? Yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you done any research into um, Ivy's sort of political leanings? No, I have not gotten that far. I would be very curious to find out. Yeah, right. It, is there anything else you, you think we should add to this story? Mom? Um, oh, I do. Oh, I know. Yes, me. <laughs> I have something to add. <laughs> okay, we we'll, we'll come to you in a moment, Susan. Your daughter's uh, dived in there. <laughs> she took the floor. Okay, I yeah. took the floor. One of the one of the crazy parallels that we have between Utah and Indiana is a religious population. Utah is filled with people called Mormons, yep. uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as Marty notated, they're Indiana filled with Jews. Both religions are adamantly against tattooing. It is not a thing that is allowed. It is expressly forbidden. You are not allowed to get tattooed. Don't even think about it. But in Utah, the head of the Mormon church put out a statement specifically saying it was okay for you to get tattooed if it was a blood type and it was hidden on your side. What, what about the, you know, the, the Jewish religious leaders? Do you know what they said? I don't have any information on what the Jewish leaders had to say about that. I would perhaps look back just seven years previous to the end of the Holocaust and see what those Jewish leaders did say then about tattoos, if they were granted dispensation, if it was forgiven, if it was allowable, or if it wasn't. I don't know what they said then, but I would think that would be a similar line that they would take. Yeah, yeah. But they would have been much more aware of that parallel, you know, the identification tattoo of the con concentration camps. Yeah, yeah, neither of neither of the tattoos, the concentration camps and the blood types, 
were done voluntarily by the people they were inflicted upon. No, no. And that, that was one thing I, I was interested to ask is, is whether you've come across anyone where their parents refused to sign the consent form. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. And I do not know the answer. Well, when the podcast goes out, you may get a load of other inquiries. I'm hoping so anyway. <laughs> I hope that would so. Be, yeah, that would be great. The more you talk about this story, the more chilling are the parallels with what happened in 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 World War Two. I mean, it, it's right. it's decidedly creepy, really. There was I remember an event uh, going with my grandmother, um, maternal grandmother, who came to this country from Hungary. And we were going to um, a butcher shop and she had placed her order and there was a, a gentleman behind there kind of balding, probably 50, 60, maybe 60 something. And he reached over to shake my grandmother's hand and I said to her, Grandma, what was that on his wrist? And she said, shh. I'll tell you about it later. Mm. Well, he he had his concentration camp tattoo. And I I wish I could remember if that scene that occurred with my grandmother, me, and the butcher was before I got tattooed or after. And I do not know. I don't recall. Yeah. Yeah. It it's yeah, it you know, that's a powerful story because i think people forget about the the holocaust well i don't think they forget i mean well you know we could have a whole separate conversation about deniers and stuff yeah. like that and i'm not you know it, it's not even worth our breath to um co cover that but i'm i what i'm really pleased about in this country is uh the history of the holocaust is a major part of the uh, curriculum in uh, schools over here and they, they the um Imperial War Museum in London has a whole floor um, de uh, dedicated to um, the Holocaust, um, which I think is is such an important you know piece of history to uh, teach about. Agreed. Yeah, um, there's a um, there is a a Hebrew. I want I want to don't want to call it a blessing, but there is a Hebrew saying. And it not only goes back to those years in the 30s and 40s, but it goes back into Jewish history. And it's three words. It's least we forget. Yeah, I mean, because there there is the, I don't know whether you're familiar with it, but in British war cemeteries, there's a quote from Rudyard Kipling, which is very similar to that, um, the author, uh, British author, poet, and it's Lest We Forget, mm -hmm. is is on yeah. a lot of the, uh, the, the gravestones. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I do this podcast, because... Um, you know, I'm I'm very conscious that World War Two, a lot of those veterans died without telling their stories, and a lot of people died without telling their stories. And 
what I'm doing is, is, you know, trying to record uh, individual stories about the Cold War. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, your stories particularly, you know, it, as soon as I, I saw it, I thought, oh, that, that sounds like a really in- interesting story. But I'm not necessarily after the, the odd ones. I think, you know, just like what people did in ordinary life in Poland, Czechoslovakia and Hungary uh, and the US and the UK and, uh, and other countries during the Cold War is, is interesting. Yeah, um, this is just an aside story. Uh, one of my brothers, his uh, father-in-law, was a Polish dentist. And in the 30s got taken and put in a concentration camp. Well, Nushik wasn't just in one concentration camp. He was in seven and survived all seven to immigrate to this country, get married. He met his wife in a DP camp after the war. They came over here. And he would be invited to go around to different groups and talk about his rather incredible experience. And I once asked him, I said, Dushik, you go to these gatherings and people listen to your story. What is the question that you are asked most often? And he looked at me and he smiled and he said in his wonderful Polish accent, well, they all want to know, do I still believe in God? And I said, oh, that's such a great question. What's your answer? This God you ask me about? This God was on vacation. <laughs> I'm I'm glad he's not lost his sense of humor. No, even, he never did. Even, even through, you know, that, that those experiences he, he, he must have had. Um Dia, is is there anything else uh you want to add before I uh let you go and get your lunch? <laughs> uh I think one small fun parallel to the Cold War to end this story is that I grew up in the 1980s in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is right next door to Los Alamos. Right. Are you familiar with what Los Alamos is? I am very familiar with uh, what Los Alamos is. Do you want to tell out, perhaps some of our listeners aren't as familiar, so do you feel free to uh, elaborate? Well, Los Alamos had the big research center where all of the big brains involved with developing the nuclear bombs were working. And it's a big, we like to say, big radioactive city. And now I grew up in Santa Fe not knowing much about the the Cold War, really. But the only thing I really knew, concretely knew, was that when our schools played any school from Los Alamos, we would lose because they were infinitely superior they were taller faster stronger better and we knew that was because of all the radiation from up at the lab of course <laughs> of course of course uh, um so susan so you you were in santa fe how close was that to the nuclear testing grounds is that a long way away or 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 not yeah um, it's the the grounds are are south uh of here yes 
Right. So, so as a child, you wouldn't have seen mushroom clouds on the horizon or anything like that. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I was hoping for another episode there. Out of here. No luck. Just blowing. <laughs> and that's not part of Santa Fe's charm. No, oh. <laughs> the city difference. No. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I sadly, I've I've not done much of the 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 United States, but I'm. Uh, gradually improving my geography the more I do these interviews. <laughs> Good. Well, that's all we had time for, but there is a lot more in the show notes where we link to Dia's blog, where there's significantly more detail on the story and a great video of Susan explaining her story too. The show notes are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 51. If you like what you're listening to, you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, our Facebook page, or with your favourite podcast provider. This really helps to raise our profile and get guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like yourselves continue the Cold War conversation. We're also on Twitter at cold war pod just go to coldwarconversations.com and click on the join the conversation option for links to our social media outlets thank you very much for listening it is really appreciated goodbye Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.